Tom Oliver is a professor of ecology at the University of Reading and the author of The Self-Delusion, The Surprising Science of How We Are Connected and Why That Matters. This is Tom Oliver. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Tom Oliver. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks. Uh, so you wrote a book called The Self-Delusion, which is a very uh, strong title. What does that mean? What is the self-delusion? So the self-delusion, I guess, is it's the um, it's the idea that we're uh, we feel intuitively like we're isolated individuals. Um, we're, we're these kind of discrete entities that move around in the world, and we're kind of in control of all our actions and our moods and behaviors. But actually, um, the book is about kind of. Um, showing the science um, from different angles, whether it's our physical bodies to our, uh, to our minds, to actually reveal that we're much more connected than we intuitively think. And actually this sense of being a, a discrete individual is, is really just an illusion. Um, and it's an illusion that evolved because it's, it was adaptive. It was good to have a sense of self, you know, we need it in the world. So it shouldn't be interpreted that I'm suggesting we, we need to abolish the sense of self or it doesn't exist at all. But um, this sense of self as, a, as a, an individual, an isolated individual, I think is an illusion. And in the modern world, it's becoming more harmful. Um, and it's harmful for our mental health and it's harmful for the, the quality of our, our environment, the planetary health, if you will. So that's why I call it a delusion. It's, it's, a, it's an illusion that has become become harmful to us and i'm arguing in the book that we need to rebalance our our sense of identity towards a more collective um right sense yeah yeah yeah, i I was just going to say there what you're describing in many ways sounds like something straight out of a lot of eastern religions where the boundaries between self and non-self are actually a lot more blurry uh than we'd like to imagine um but you're you're trying to ground this in a more scientific way and like go ahead yeah no absolutely yeah you're absolutely right and i mean there's there's lots in the book from um religions like sort of buddhism and and taoism and um and also more sort of modern psychology um as well the, in a sense there's nothing new in in what i'm saying that um that the sense the self is an illusion and that's what you know core that's what sort of fundamental tenet of buddhist uh, philosophy i guess what i'm adding is is that element of of the science whether it's you know from biology about our kind of you know the cells that build up our body whether it's from neuroscience and, and cognitive psychology that when you actually start to pull together these different strands of evidence it's really like it, you know it's quite a overpowering um conclusion that the self is is doesn't exist and and these religions in that sense were were correct and so i guess what i'm learning is that evidence-based that uh, evidence-based spirituality i guess if if you will i suppose when you say the self doesn't exist like you talk about early on in the book things like you know the atmosphere the oxygen molecules in our body uh they were whirling around in the sky for who knows how long um and and we can go through the list of, of evidence but does that suggest that this concept of, you know, you and I is totally illusory? And if so, what, what does that even mean? So, um, I think it's uh, you could imagine it a bit like a, a Russian Russian dolls kind of nested inside 
one another and we could have a sense of identity where we just have that that egoic um uh, sense of uh, of of ownership of a body um isolated from the rest of the world and that's a very strong sense of egoic identity but we can also associate at different levels you know we associate with our family we don't um you know they feel part of us to, to some degree and we look after them not as a kind of act of altruism it's actually because we we kind of see them as part of our our sense of um you know they're kind of part of us in a way and we can identify at different levels with a with a football team or with a town or with our country or with the whole world sort of global citizens so we have these different levels of identification um and some people tend to be more um you know associate at those high levels as well like kind of more metapersonal level and and research shows that if you have that identification you still have the ego uh, but you can just more easily shift between the the different levels but some some people tend to be much more focused at the level of of the sort of isolated ego and especially in the modern world we have our culture kind of reinforcing that that angle and i think that's that's been the issue really that um um you know the sense of self evolved because it was useful we needed it to kind of be able to gather food to track our social interactions but actually, in the groups we evolved in, there would have been checks and balances preventing us becoming too selfish. You know, if we stole from the group, then we would be punished or, you know, we'd be thrown out of the group, which would threaten our survival. So there's this kind of balance between individualism and collectivism. But in the modern world with these massive groups of, you know, we interact with potentially seven point whatever, eight billion people. Yeah. Uh, and also we have culture, we have government saying, I mean, in, in the UK, we had Margaret Thatcher saying, you know, there's no such thing as society, only individuals um, and their families. And then we had Boris Johnson recently saying, you know, greed is good. Uh, that's what that's what um, got us through, got us the vaccine from the COVID vaccine. You know, so these, this messaging that comes from, from many of our, our right wing um, politicians, then you've got education system, you know, encouraging people to build self-esteem and even sell ourselves as a brand. I mean, how crazy is that, that, you know, we know that we, we change over time and actually we're not the same person we were when we woke up this morning in fact you know our brain is changing all the time and yet to build a brand which is kind of static of course that's going to cause cognitive dissonance and and stress um, and anxiety so yeah. those cultural influences are, are pushing us too far i would argue um, towards that egoic sense of identity you mentioned the right-wing aspect of it, but there is a left-wing aspect of it as well. And most commonly summed up in the phrase, the personal is political, where everything is centered on me, myself, my identity, and being reduced to, um, uh, you know, how, how do I feel about these experiences as opposed to, okay, what are the larger social structures in place? Like that, do you think there's a great book on this called The Culture of Narcissism? It was written in the 70s. I don't know if you've read it, but it talks a lot about that, where people are being more self-focused. And it's it's a political phenomenon, but it's not constricted to left and right. Did, would you agree with that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I've, yeah, I've, I haven't read that particular book. I'll check it out. That's, that's a good um good recommendation i mean i do mention in in my book about some of the work of um um psychologists sort of tracking those trends in narcissism especially in sort of college students and how yeah. you know narcissism has become more common over time tracking a more general shift in in uh, individualistic values and attitudes 
I mean, your point's really interesting, actually, whether that correlates with a, a left or right wing um, world view. And um, yeah, it'd be interesting to think about that more. I think that there's some research to show that people that have more conservative attitudes tend to um, struggle with um, ambiguity and they have a, a lower threshold, a lower tolerance for ambiguity. So they like things black and white. Yeah. And that means it's it's um, potentially there's there's more um, tendency to associate with kind of an object-driven approach, a very abstract identification. And this this idea of focusing on relationships and a more holistic type of thinking, which is is much more sort of ecological, um, doesn't necessarily fit well with that very strong conservative mindset. Mm. So actually, systems thinking, which is perhaps what we need in the modern world to deal with a lot of these interlinked. Uh, global environmental and social problems in my view is not well addressed by strongly conservative views uh, if, if you follow that line of evidence about sure. sort of um but but yeah i i, I ha actually haven't thought so much about the left-wing as aspect and yeah i think it's interesting what you say to to explore that more whether that by de yeah can also have aspects of of strong individualism yeah. It, the only reason I say that is because it's very hard to escape the culture that you're in and the society that you're in, no matter what your political affiliations might be. Like I, I was in a park recently, and this has to do with, in your book, you describe how people, studies have shown people who have a greater sense of connectedness to nature tend to also be more uh, ecological in their behavior, you know, recycling and all those kinds of things. And I was in a park in the middle of the city and I had this weird sense that this was kind of like a, we had penned in nature that like this park used to just be how all the world was. And now we had mastered it to such a point that it was like our pet. And, and that attitude that as we get technologically more superior than we've ever been, we feel as though nature is something we've mastered across the board, left and right, you know, whomever. It's very hard to resist that feeling. And if you don't, then it also becomes hard to have that sense of connectedness with nature. I mean, isn't it just the cities that we live in, um, our, our relationship to nature is going to be like very strained no matter who you are, right? How do you get back to that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's a kind of a modern phenomenon, that, that sort of disconnection from nature that, that goes across, you know, political boundaries and is more a function of the way we live um, and yeah a lot of studies have shown that children for example have less contact with nature and feel less connected to nature and and it's not surprising when you know we spend more time indoors you know up to 95 percent of our time is indoors and you know um, the the time we do interact with nature is often now more on, on a screen you know watching nature documentaries etc mm. um, and you know access to green space in some cases has become harder, especially in inner cities. So I yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about that, that the history of that um, relationship with nature, because there definitely was a period where um, there was a focus on sort of the domination of nature and, and, and kind of mastery of nature. Um, you know, people like Francis Bacon talking about kind of uh, very much that, that, that focus. And then there was a more romantic view of nature kind of um, the wilderness and um, and now we have this this kind of approach to nature where we're starting to recognize its benefits but it, there's lots of books for example talking about nature as a kind of 
you know the nature fix or you know get yeah. get your dose of nature because there's good evidence that actually that contact with nature gives us psychological benefits and physical benefits of being out outside obviously which is great stuff but it's very much treating nature in that kind of objective way that it's almost like something we can shoot and it's not necessarily um helping us reconnect with nature in the sense of um our identity becoming less isolated and more kind of um seeing ourselves as part of that nature and that that sort of deep reconnection um it's been talked about by sort of various philosophers and, and ecologists, deep ecology. Um, right. There's someone called Arnie Nace who had a nice idea about this sort of ecological sense of self that essentially what I describe is where uh, we lose that sense of ego or we can put it aside more easily. And we, we kind of identify not just with our family, but also with other species and, and other people, and even on the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, and that's that sense of that reconnection um, I think is something that we urgently need to um, rekindle because all the evidence shows that when we feel more isolated from nature, we have more mental health problems, more anxiety, but also we care less about it, you know, um, because it's something that's other and, and to, to look after it is like hard work. It's after you have to, you know, it's an altruistic act where you look after something else, even though it's hurting you. And, and that's a difficult argument to make. Um, whereas, that, you know, we, we don't, that's not how we treat our family. We don't have those transactional relationships. We're looking after our family. We see them as part of our kind of, uh, you know, um, part of us in a way. And we, uh, it's a sort of act of a self-care to, to look after them. And, and if we can extend that, that sense of kinship more broadly, and this was Arne Nace's theory, that, that um, looking after the environment wouldn't be an act of uh, altruism. It would be an act of self-care. Yeah. And then lots of recent environmental psychologies kind of showing he was right, even though he, he kind of came up with that on the basis of just a sort of speculation in, in the 1970s. But a lot of this environmental psychology research suggests that um, it measures people's attitudes, how connected they do feel to nature through a series of sort of questionnaires. And then it links that to, you know, do you recycle? Do you aim actively to reduce your carbon footprint? Do you volunteer for environmental causes? And there's strong correlations between these pro-environmental behaviours and this sense of, of connectedness to nature. Mm. So I think it is very important. And to me, it's a key, um, a key leverage point in, in, our, in our ability to deal with environmental problems. We can't just deal with them at the level of institutions, hoping that we can put a tax on carbon or a new regulation and hoping it will all work out. Um, we really have to change our mindsets in my view. Yes. Yeah. That, and that seems like one of the harder challenges because it, it, it's very difficult to stop the train that we're going on. Like, um, yeah, I, I had heard this, this quote about people in like the middle ages. I don't know if this is true, but it, it struck me as an interesting concept that, uh, they, people used to believe that we belonged to the earth as opposed to the earth belonging to us. That's a very different relationship. It, is it possible though, in, an industrialized, uh, you know, super technology age that we can go back to that feeling. It seems like we're getting farther and farther away from our natural selves. Yeah, I, I think there are still cultures. I mean, maybe our kind of mainstream Western culture takes that very much sort of um, object-oriented kind of transactional ownership idea about nature and. And even to the degree of, you know, maybe it's progressive, but putting, giving rights to like a river or something or a mountain, you know, it's, it sounds like a great solution because then we don't 
damage it. But actually, it's still following that paradigm of, okay, I'm one entity over here. There's an entity over there. We need to protect it. Let's give it some rights. You take it to its extreme, we'd be giving rights to every blade of grass, every beetle, every spider. And, and then we, how do you balance those rights? Right. So you can see it's a kind of, it's not really the, a, 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 the perfect solution. But there are cultures still, you know, in you know, places, indigenous cultures and you know, some countries, you know, especially in South America, still have this much more um, view that you, you talk about, that we belong to the earth and, and mother nature. And, right. and actually even global assessments of biodiversity have had to um, make sure they deal with these cultural nuances. And actually, rather than they initially went in, there's a platform called Intergovernmental Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, bit of a mouthful. Yeah. But it's like the, the IPCC that we have for climate. It's, it's the same for, for kind of biodiversity. And initially they talked about nature being about natural capital and ecosystem services, this very sort of idea that objective, objectification of nature yeah. but very soon they realized that um it just really wasn't chiming with a lot of the countries involved and there was a real battle and a debate about how what terminology we use um and actually now they're much more there's much more plurality in the way they talk about these relationships with nature and there's a whole new assessment actually a global assessment on how we value nature and how that those values are changing yeah. coming to the latter point of your question just briefly you mentioned about you know can we change it? Can we change back? Because we've we seem to be on this juggernaut where we have this yeah. sort of you know modern culture. But I think you know tipping points can happen very quickly. And when you see movements like the school climate strikes and Extinction Rebellion, you know these are movements of a kind of sense of identity which is much more global and you know um, uh, sort of global citizenship. And I think that is very promising that um, that we may see rapid changes. Uh, but equally, things could go the other way as well. Um, yeah. In response to environmental shocks, we might see more retrenchment to sort of kind of xenophobia and even excessive individualism where we just consume, um, yeah, just consume because we see that there's, uh, you know, the time's running out, we might as well enjoy ourselves in a kind of selfish way, which is really a sad way to end the, the um, uh, civilization, I think. <laughs> it's not great, yeah. It's uh, and okay. So you're an ecologist. I want to I want to get the the real scoop here. What what's going to happen? Uh, I mean, it, it seems as though like yes, like kids are going on climate strikes. That's great. Do I think it's going to bring down uh, Exxon Mobil in the short term? I don't know. I'm personally, I've heard you say that you're optimistic. I'm not. Okay. If things continue on the path they're on, what can we expect? And let's just say in the area of migration, what, what, what can we expect in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I, I think we're definitely in for a rocky ride. There's no denying it. And, and whilst I, I'd like to be, I am optimistic. I'm still kind of, I'd like to think I'm sort of a realist as well in terms of some of the, the shocks we're going to face. Uh, I have no illusions that the kind of these crises are sort of interlinked, you know, whether it's um, extreme weather events, whether it's the food shortages we're going to face, whether it's the pollination crisis, um, you know, air quality um, and pollution, you know, these are all driven by our, our kind of juggernaut of a society, which is just consuming resources at, at a worrying rate. Um, and 
yeah, in the next 10 or 20 years, I think we're going to see more of the, the kind of things we started to see where, you know, we see displacement of populations and, and more extreme weather events causing impacts. But I think the real challenges will come, you know, slightly after that towards, you know, 30, 40 years. And I think there we'll really see things um, starting to, to hit crunch point where, I mean, the UN Development Programme, for example, or is, no, that might not be right. A, there's a UN institution which tracks human migration and makes projections as well. And, you know, what we see at the moment of, of you know, um, people in these boats coming from Africa to try to get, you know, move somewhere where they can live and have a livelihood, you know, away because in many cases um, there's been desertification and, and an inability to actually grow crops. That problem is just a trickle at the moment as to how it, you know, will be in the future. So we're talking about millions of people migrating and the sheer ethical time bond that we'll just put up our borders and say, oh, you can't come in because um, you're yeah. not a part of this nation, I think is is worrying. And it's not like we can just hermetically seal our, our, our borders as well. We live in a transboundary world. And, um, you know, most of our, in the UK, we import 50% of our food. So we rely on those other countries anyway, and, and their economies to be functioning. And, you know, air pollution is a transboundary problem biodiversity losses as well because actually all these species that we lose we're hoping to gain species from from the south as species shift their ranges towards the poles so you know it it's kind of crazy to think we can manage this on a, on a sort of national basis which is why i feel that we need these international co you know uh, institutions to be strengthened and that sense of global citizenship needs to be there and actually what we're seeing which is worrying is a kind of just in the face of a few climate migrants and a, and a kind of a pandemic which is um you know of course severe but not as severe as it could be uh, there are many more um uh, zoonotic diseases out there which could mm. become uh, emergent with continued land use degradation and and um, so we see this retraction towards sort of national borders and xenophobia already what will happen when things really start to to get rough will we see that increasing sort of securitization and and xenophobia and, and kind of rich countries looking after themselves and within those rich people looking after themselves right. and this kind of uh, race to the bottom as it were so that's the that's the negative part um, but, the, <laughs> yeah. but the positive part i suppose is that you know yeah you know a few uh, people striking is not going to change the economic systems which kind of structure our world or you know the um the, the hegemony of these different, you know, different sort of businesses and um, countries that are often driving the negative effects. But things can change very quickly with mindsets. And actually, yes, uh, you know, maybe adults now in the world today are kind of fixed in their worldview. And as much as, you know, we might try and persuade people to adopt practices which change their worldview. And we can talk about those, you know, sort of, you know, um, there are ways that we can you know, our brains are plastic and we can change the way we think. But actually, younger people, their brains are much more flexible and the way they grow up and the way they think could be very different to the way we think. So actually, within one generation, you could get a massive change. And obviously, the business leaders of tomorrow and the politicians of tomorrow are today's children. So I think there's massive hope in, in the way we educate um, society and, and children especially and how that could lead to a massive transformation in in world views which cascades up to transform those institutions that's the optimistic bit perhaps okay 
it, it seems like when when you talk about borders, it already w- without even the most severe aspects of climate change being present, it already seems like if you look around the world, a lot of the big like hotspots for violence are border disputes like Israel, Palestine, Kashmir, uh, uh, I, I guess Tibet might be in there. I, I, I don't know, but it it seems like. In the United States, we, we had a we didn't let in we were going to let in twenty thousand Syrian refugees, and we said no. And there's going to be a lot more if what you're describing takes place. It's going to be a lot more than twenty thousand, and there's going to be a lot of frightened people in the states who look and see all these people coming from where Africa, millions of people from South America, from. Yeah, all these poor countries, mostly, right? So it, it seems like there's a huge potential for violence too, because you can't stop the flow of people and you might not be able to, to prevent people from like clenching up and, and wanting them out. It, it's kind of like a, a movable objects meets an unstoppable force. You, I mean, it, you see what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, it's a challenging situation, isn't it? Um, I think, and and yeah, just to build on that that issue. I mean, there's some, there's also some nice research by um, someone called Michelle Gelfand in the in, in the US. I think she's based talking about tight tight and loose societies, um, and a tight society is one which is much more rule based, and there's kind of coherence within the country but actually they're much more kind of antagonistic towards outgroups. They're more likely to elect right-wing authoritarian leaders. And what, what um, um, Michelle Gelfand's group and, and some others have shown is that when there are more sort of shocks and whether they're climate shocks or whether they're financial shocks, countries that have had more shocks tend to have more tighter societies. Yeah. And in response to these shocks, they, they can transform. And perhaps that's, you know, what you see with, you know, America and Trump's recently, you know, um, you kind of see these, and and in the UK, you know, we've got a a kind of fairly right wing government, we just had Brexit, you know, we've, it's just a crazy decision in in a way, we're linked closely to Europe, and yet we've we've just ejected ourselves. Um, But in the face of, and I think it's exactly what you say, people get scared, and they they kind of uh, shrink back to their in-group. And if the in-group is a nation, then you kind of elect a strongman leader who says, yes, America first, let's build a wall, which is exactly, you know, what, what, what Trump did. So I think that that's the danger, that knee-jerk reaction. And so, and this is what I'd, I'd like to write about in my next book, actually, is how we can think about those systemic effects. Okay, so when these shocks come, this is likely to happen. Can we kind of predict that? And how would we diffuse that and actually maybe change those responses? At the moment, you've got the media kind of fueling the fire. You know, we have a newspaper called the Daily Mail, which is it's Perfect. almost on the verge of, yeah, of, of, you know, racist. It's kind of just a little bit back from that. But, you know, there is it's essentially, you know, this the kind of attitude is oh, coming over here, stealing our jobs, you know, stealing our food. Like, you know, let's, it's that kind of uh, attitude, um, xenophobia, essentially. And so, you know, you, you see these uh, events, you know, people trying to cross borders, and then you've got these newspapers which are fueling the fire and, and, and causing that further antagonistic response. But actually, maybe if we had more public debates about the ethical issue that we've caused climate change, and we're, there's going to be vast swathes of the equatorial band of the earth that are uninhabitable, those people are going to want to move, you know, 
is it right that we don't allow people to move that we literally build a wall and and watch people die and 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 ultimately when these numbers turn into millions you know there's fiction books there's a nice book called the wall i think it's by john lanchester i think but um it doesn't give any details, but it's about this country and there are these other people called the others. And essentially the country has to defend itself through walls. There's people on there with machine guns and there's these, you know, the others are coming and your duty as a citizen is to spend some time like your military, um, what's it called? Your military duty for a year or so is to go on the wall. And if the others come, you have to kind of shoot them and then you can get on with your life for the rest of your life. But, you know, this sort of alienation of, uh, and, um, depersonification of other people from other countries uh, you know even to the extent of calling them um, you know migrants rather than refugees is a kind of subtle depersonification and and you know calling them the, the others or you know I think that that's the danger that society drifts towards that 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 direction how do we diffuse that I think is a really salient question well, let me ask you something, because we're talking about a lot of the dangers of individualism, but of course there are considerations to balance against the collective interests as well. I talked to this guy who is a, um, he's a scientist and he studied social insects and he was saying how ants do a much better job of controlling pandemics because they can pick up with their, their pheromones uh, that an ant is sick and they drag it out of the hive and they kill it <laughs> and and then they practice a kind of like social distancing clearly we're not going to kill the first person who gets sick i mean if somebody is we don't want to quarantine people on desert islands etc um do you worry about that at all i mean that's definitely a in american life political life that's kind of a terror is the collectivists the communists etc I mean, there, yeah, there are problems there, though, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think those um, fears are kind of um, exaggerated, I guess. And I get and this, this idea of the sort of um, the uh, propaganda can can kind of fuel them a little bit more, you know, to the extent that actually a centrist position in the US can be called a socialist. I, I, right. I, I gather um, because there's been this overall shift kind of towards the, the right. So actually what was you know, even center looks and gets kind of called um, left wing. But but I think you're you're right. You know, there's something we should cherish certainly about you know the progress we've made and, and protecting indiv individual rights and 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 this is certain. I'm not certainly not making the argument that we abandon all that. We kind of get rid of our names. We you know lose our sense of self. We abolish the self. You know, the individual. Right. It's about rebalancing, and and it's just this argument. Um, and I try and make it the argument in the book and whenever I talk, but it's, it's sometimes easy to be um, misinterpreted that, um, that, yeah, that it's not saying about abolishing the self. It's about recognizing that our sense of self is greater than just our body or our minds, that actually we're part of a more in interconnected network. And when we start to realize that, we can manage these, these interconnected systems better and we can be happier more personally and we can reduce the damage we're doing to the planet and, and our impacts on other people. But you're completely right, you know, there are dangers and hist history shows, you know, from communism um, and even different countries now, you know, different approach. So for example, in China, there's this, um, the, the treatment of the, the Uyghur Muslims, 
where they're, they're deemed there's a kind of um, sort of cultural cleansing, as it were, in terms of trying to change their, uh, make them conform more to the ideal that the Chinese state would like in terms of training mindsets. And obviously that's quite a strong handed, you know, approach of really yeah. forcefully changing, you know, brainwashing is one word to sort of say, well, you know, we don't like the way you think or your practices. So we're going to take you, and we're going to put you in education camps and, ch and transform the way that you think. Now, Western governments would never d do that, argue, and which is, is you know, a good thing, I think. Yes. Um, but equally, the, the downside of that is we're very hands-off. So we just say, well, okay, the individual is, is sacrosanct. We can't change the way people think. You know, we can change institutions. We can try and put taxes on this. We can regulate that. But let's, let's, leave, let's not be a big brother. Let's not be a nanny state. Let's just leave the people to think what they think. But actually, in the absence of that, in the absence of any stewardship of, of our mindsets, of our culture, you've got these forces which are influencing us all the time. You know, the media, uh, businesses, you know, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, social media is always changing the way we think. And the danger of kind of no, no regulation and no oversight or stewardship is that we are pulled in different directions that might not actually be good. And I think we've been pulled too far down that individualistic um, direction and we kind of need to re-steer uh, realign ourselves on you know along the spectrum a bit better but there's a still a big question how do you do that you know in a way which is more about stewardship than about brainwashing i think is, is you know, <laughs> yes an important question i mean absolutely and and on a personal level um i there i imagine there are changes people can make um like do, do you see meditation i mean we talked in the beginning of this podcast about eastern beliefs and the boundary the self and so on and meditation is a big part of that do you see uh meditation i don't know psychedelics any of these things as being useful towards deconstructing your ego absolutely yeah yeah i do i think there's i mean there's really strong science behind both of those now uh meditation um showing that actually can transform the brain and, and kind of downregulate this sense of the, of the brain that, that kind of keeps the self-rumination going and, and, and sort of, um, and as you said, we, you know, that center of the brain is important because it evolved for a reason and we need it. We're not talking about, again, not having a sense of self, but it, it can become overworked and, and we end, and self-rumination is, is the kind of root cause of many psychological issues around anxiety and and, um, and loneliness in fact and you know we face a mental health crisis uh, in in many developed countries at the moment and meditation has been shown to to address that and can lead to people being happier and more relaxed but also it, it can lead to people having more compassion because it downplays that sense of individual isolated sense of self the kind of boundaries between us and other people sort of become more porous and softer and then we have a greater sense of empathy and greater sense of compassion and that's all measured and and, and quite robust evidence for those effects psychedelics as well um i think we're still early in the in the sort of science that because of these there's been prohibitions and limited research but i think there is early results showing how how they can be very useful um and yeah for example um helping us to to kind of uh change our habits of thought as well we can kind of get in, stuck in a rut like anything um and we can be stuck in a certain way of thinking 
and and I mean it's it's physiological as well. You know, the neural networks in our brain. You know, the the tracks that are well worn, uh, the 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 neural networks that get used a lot become sort of easier to for, for electrical signals to pass through, and the ones we use very little just sort of slowly disappear. So if we stop playing the piano that we used to know, you know, the kind of the skill sort of gradually disappears. I mean, that's literally the the neural networks are starting to to um, not be as well marked out essentially. Um, and if we think in a certain way, for example, a very egoistic way, that's a, that's a kind of pattern of thinking and it, and it ref, it's reflected in networks in our brain. Yeah. And what psychedelics do, I think to a degree is that they help us to sort of throw up in the air and, and experience different ways of, of uh, neural connectivity, different patterns. And even though that's temporary, what it can do um, I, I believe is that it helps us to see there is another way of thinking. So then we can perhaps see that there are ways, other ways of being. And how you get there is not necessarily by taking psychedelics all the time, but it's maybe then you say, well, oh, I see there is a different way to be. And maybe I will you know, try meditation or I will uh, join a conservation group where I work in a community because I can see there are other ways of, of existing which, are, which make me feel different. Yeah. And and so I, in that sense, personally, I think there could be value in in those types of um, drugs, which even though they're temporary, they they help us to experience different ways of of thinking. Absolutely, yeah. Just sort of throwing all the cards up and seeing, you know, okay, let's let's reshuffle the deck here. But um, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So I wanted to ask you before you go. You, you spoke about uh, earlier, you, you got a second book on the way. Um, this book, people can buy The Self-Delusion anywhere, Amazon, et cetera. Um, do you have a, a release date people can get pre-orders on this next book or what's the, the status of that? Yeah, so, well, the next book, um, you can't pre-order it because it's still in my head at the moment. Okay. <laughs> so, it, yeah, there's a kind of, yeah, maybe a few years down the line, it will be it will be out. So there's a long process of kind of, um of getting that down on paper and and and, and getting yeah. it published and, and so yeah the, the self-delusion i think actually in the um for listeners in the us i think at the moment you can buy it on amazon and it will be shipped but i think from the 23rd of june actually this month um it'll be printed by hachette in the us so that'll yeah. save on the postage costs um so yeah um cool uh, yeah i actually i found it in a bookshop in albania um oh wow okay. yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's all over the place um oh, that's great that's great and, and do you have a, a website or anywhere people can reach you yeah there is yeah actually there's a, a website and and i put on a f quite a few sort of uh videos on there of different talks and and this podcast for example like i'll put it on there um but if i think if you just google the self-delusion tom oliver and it's it's my university of reading um there's some web pages devoted to it um, Perfect. yeah cool uh tom thanks again for your time um and have a great rest of your day thank you yeah no it's great to great to chat and it's good good questions and good to think about these things so thanks absolutely my pleasure take care thank you to tom oliver and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan gammy see you next time <laughs>